We're going to turn this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, in listening to Dave's message last week, I just had a sense I wanted to go to 2 Corinthians 5. You remember the benediction if you were here. We, we turned there and we looked there and we did the benediction. It just got me thinking, you know, I want to return to that passage and, and settle on that passage and that text for a standalone message this morning. We're going to start a new series next week in the Gospel of Luke. So we're going to go into a gospel, which is just so rich to spend time in a gospel. Luke's gospel is a sweet one. We're going to be in that for a long time, so we're going to do a standalone message here this morning. And the reason for that is it's, it's a new year. It's the first Sunday of 2015. It seems a little insane to me that we're 15 years into this century already. I still have a hard time fathoming that. But what I wanted to do was to take this morning as the first Sunday of 2015... And just, just stake our flag, reclaim our commitment to keeping the main thing the main thing. As I was thinking, I took some vacation time this week, just thinking of the year that was coming. I'm filled with faith for what could happen at Providence. I'm excited for what 2015 has in store for us. I, I really expect that there's going to be a lot of great opportunities for us as a church and as a family. I think there's going to be ministry opportunities. I think there's going to be chances to, to deepen our commitment to, to missional living and discipleship together. But of all those exciting things that I think God has in store for us, I think we'd find they'd be rather impotent. They'd be rather lacking in long-term fruitfulness if we pursued all those opportunities and somehow became untethered from the gospel itself. So what better time than the first Sunday of the new year as we think of resolutions and, and new Bible reading plans. So let's just spend some time soaking in a message whose whole purpose is to take us to the foot of the cross. So that's what we're going to do this morning. I want Paul's vision from 1 Corinthians 2.2 For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But what if that became our rallying cry as a church for 2015? I want to do nothing else this year but in my fellowship, in my care group, in my interactions with others on Sunday mornings, in my interactions with my neighbors, I want to know nothing else except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Well, that's our goal this morning. So look with me now at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 14. This is our benediction from last week. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. <coughs> for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, 
God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God's holy word. May he write its truth upon our hearts. Well, I want us to sit in that text this morning. I want us to ponder and pour over the truth that in Christ, God reconciles us to himself. As we do that, we're going to see three points that we'll spend time looking at this morning. First, we're going to consider the alienation that this text talks about. Then we'll consider the price of peace that was paid to secure that reconciliation. And then we're finally going to consider the reward of that reconciliation. So first, the alienation. This text focuses on something central to the gospel. The idea that there's reconciliation. But the whole idea that you need reconciliation first conveys the fact that there's a need for restored peace, right? You don't have to be reconciled unless relationships are disrupted. So before you can consider reconciliation, you have to consider the nature of the estrangement. The hard truth is that men live in alienation from God. And it's a severe lack of reconciliation. It goes deep. Even harder to grapple with, harder to admit often to ourselves, is that the cause of this alienation, it's not owing to, like a lot of times, if you, you see people need to get reconciled, there's a little blame to go on both sides, right? Rare is the case of, of human reconciliation where one person is totally wrong and the other person is totally right. Maybe, maybe it's 90-10, <laughs> Usually probably closer to 50-50. But that's not the case here. The, the cause of this alienation lies squarely on the shoulders of one party. There, there's no shared blame. Paul's point is that in our sin, we've set ourselves up in total rebellion against God. Inexcusable rebellion. There's no reason for the treason that we commit. We've declared in our thoughts and in our actions, even our very nature, that we are God's enemies. That's what's happening. From, from Adam onward, we've all added our voice to the mob of humanity. This mob that's crying out against the Lord, crying out the creatures to displace the Creator. To remove God from his rightful throne. That's what our rebellion is. That's what sin is. It's, it's a treason against God. We don't have the wrong idea about what's going on here. This rebellion, it can kind of have you leave you with this picture that God is somehow somehow a helpless victim. That's not the case. The chasm separating us that, that draws the battle lines is owing to our rebellion, yes, but it's also equally owing to God's anger, the Bible calls it God's wrath against sin, against that rebellion. Romans 1.18 reads, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
God's anger is revealed against this treason. Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh, the mind that is set against God, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. Our need for reconciliation, it stems directly from the juxtaposition of our sin to God's holiness. For those of you who came to the, the classes we were doing in the mornings the last six weeks, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, we saw this in vivid detail. The astounding nature of God's holiness, His, his purity, His perfection, His otherness. And the infinite distance our sin creates. We are sinful by nature, but God, God is utterly and inherently holy. He's set apart. He's other. He's unique. He's different. He's flawless in perfection and purity. In every way imaginable, He's the antithesis of our brokenness and our sinfulness. Now, because of God's holiness, there's only one possible response to our sin. As uncomfortable as it can be to talk about, the only response of a holy God to people in rebellion, of a pure God to people who've defiled themselves, is just wrath. Sinclair Ferguson writes this, The holiness of God teaches us that there is only one way to deal with sin. Radically, seriously, painfully, constantly. If you do not so live, you do not live in the presence of the Holy One of Israel. The reconciliation Paul is talking about in this passage, it's it's a dynamic word, isn't it? It's, it's such a profound concept. But to talk about reconciliation takes on a whole nother degree and level of meaning when you consider the seriousness of the enmity between the two parties. When Case has a fight with one of his little friends, we, we have to reconcile them. Somebody's probably not sharing a toy. With Case and Sadie, the big excuse recently has been one of them will do something and the other one will quickly yell, it was an accident! To which the other one was it wasn't an accident! It was, he was trying! We have to separate them, we have, we have to seek to reconcile them. As traumatic as it seems to them though, it's not a major reconciliation. It's not the kind of reconciliation you would have, say, between an unfaithful spouse. I was talking with a pastor friend who has a new couple in their church. And and the woman was part of an adulterous affair with a well-known pastor. The pastor of the couple in their former church. And he just talked about watching the trauma of them seeking reconciliation. Because the hurt is, is so deep and it's so hard. He talks about how a lot of Sundays they just sit there and just hold each other and cry. Reconciliation is a dynamic thing. 
Especially when you consider the levels and, and the depths of the break in relationship. To accurately speak of our reconciliation to God, we have to first ponder the infinite antithesis that our sin is to God's holiness. I was talking with an unbelieving woman a while back, and she just could not fathom in her mind how there was any sort of justice, how you you could even have a conception of God that would look at someone who had passed away, even if they had lived a long life, and say that person who, who lived a long life in rebellion against God, that that life, even if it was 70, 80, 90 years long, that that life lived should then deserve eternal punishment. It com- completely failed to compute in her mind. The two didn't add up. It wasn't just. More explicitly, she said, it wasn't loving. That's, that's not who God was. You don't need that kind of reconciliation. George Smeaton, in his famous book, Christ's Doctrine of the Atonement, writes this. The guilt of the offense is proportional to the greatness, the moral excellence and glory of him against whom the offense is committed and who made us for loyal obedience to himself. Nothing else, therefore, comes into consideration in estimating the enormity of sin, but the infinite majesty, glory, and claims of Him against whom we sin. Our disobedience of God, our our rebellion against God, our rejection of God, it's infinitely different than two six-year-old boys fighting over the remote control of the video game. One life in the balance of God's holiness and glory against our sinfulness does deserve eternal punishment. Romans 5.10 demolishes any notions that you can have an easy appeasement, an easy coming to peace. We read about the stunning cost that gets inflicted to bring about the reconciliation Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. Romans 5.10 says, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. While we were enemies, while we didn't want to be reconciled, we were reconciled to God. How bad was the disruption of relationship? While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. You can't twist biblical reconciliation. You can't lower the bar. You can't be working to to kind of gut it of its strength. When you try and take away the stench of our sin from what's happening in reconciliation... You completely lose the entire concept of what's happening. You lose the majesty and the glory and the awesomeness of the gospel that's taking place in the act itself. Our holiest deeds are polluted by the presence of our sin. That's a stunning statement, isn't it? Every aspect of our lives needs to be cleansed in order to bring us back to God. 
But as stunning as that sounds, it only underscores the truly stunning nature of God's own holiness. And here's the thing. Unlike other alienated parties, we said it before, God shares no blame. This isn't a 90-10. It's not a 50-50. It's 100% on our side. And yet, what does Paul say in our text? All the blame is on our side. We were his enemies. And who makes the first move? Verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. We can have this caricature, I think, sometimes, that at the cross, you have loving Jesus and wrathful, unreasonable God the Father. Here's Jesus standing between an angry God the Father and and humanity and pleading our case. We can kind of divide up the Trinity in that way. But but that's, that's a caricature of what's actually happening. God's reconciling activity isn't divided up within the Godhead. In Christ... God, God the Father, was reconciling. Christ is is doing the work of reconciliation as He does the Father's bidding, as He does the Father's will. It's the Father who wants us to be reconciled. It's the Father who's pursuing us in Christ. It's His plan of redemption. Reconciliation, the restoration of relationship... It's the joy of the Godhead. Christ's historic actions on the cross are to be viewed through the lens of the Father beginning and planning and ending this work. The wronged party in the equation of 2 Corinthians 5 is doing all the labor of reconciliation. That gives you a sense of the nature of our alienation. Which then allows us to consider the price of the peace. In verse 19 we read, That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. For our sake he made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The uniqueness of our reconciliation is seen both in God's initiative, that the wrong party initiates reconciliation, and in the lengths that God goes to reestablish peace. If you have on the one side our treason, you have on the other side God's reaction to it, which is His pursuit of us in love. God chooses not to count our failures against us. Romans 5.8 says, God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still rebelling, while we were still hating Him, Christ died for us. Since there, therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's, it's right here. It's precisely here in considering that God doesn't count our sins against us, that the peddlers of, of cheap grace 
get the gospel most wrong. Pop culture pastors malign the idea of God's wrath. They don't talk about God's holiness. They don't mention things like sin. They smile a lot. They have lots of really encouraging messages, but they don't touch on those subjects. Sometimes they avoid those subjects. Sometimes they speak out publicly and write books against those subjects. It's wrong, they would say, to talk about a God who's angry. It's wrong to say you would talk about a God whose holiness requires wrath against sin. But when they do that, they impugn God's character in, in speaking against God's wrath, in lowering the bar of holiness, in refusing to talk about our sin. They actually distort the very nature of the cross itself, don't they? If God really feels no wrath against sin, then the supposed love displayed by the cross, isn't it really nothing more than just a twisted instrument of cruelty and injustice? Why is he sending Jesus to that cross if he doesn't have wrath that needs to be appeased against sin. That, that strips Christ's sacrifice of its loving purpose. No wrath leaves us with a God who, who's hardly loving and he's certainly less than holy, both in his attitude towards sin and the way that he treats his son. It's only when we view the cross through the dual lens of God's holiness and God's love that its purpose becomes clear. The price of peace required that our, our trespasses be dealt with. Something no fallen man could ever do. The holiness of God demanded that these could not be merely cast aside. God's holiness demands there has to be a penalty for violating Him in the way that we've done it. And yet the love of God refused to leave us unreconciled and separated. Now, if we're not careful, it can kind of seem like God's, God's love and God's wrath are set against each other, right? Listen to how Philip Hughes talks about it. When the cross is seen to be the place where God become man, bears for man, as man, the sin of man, endures the just penalty of sin, and therefore exhausts the wrath of God against sin. And all this because of God's surpassing love for man? Then alone will it be seen that at the cross, love and wrath meet in a common purpose. That mercy combines with truth and righteousness and peace kiss each other. The cross is not a point of battle between God's holiness and His righteousness and His love and its mercy. The cross is the point where they're both held up in their most glorious and brilliant level of detail. God's ultimate love for Himself above all else is extended to us mercifully. When we lower the bar of holiness, when we discount the evil of sin, when we pretend sin isn't that bad, when we call things that are sin not sin, or, or we change the names of sin, that father doesn't have an anger problem. He just 
gets a little upset sometimes. Websites out there now, the tagline of which is, have an affair. The marketing tagline, have an affair. It's just an affair. It's not adultery, like Seth read about in in 1 Corinthians 6, that can leave you separated from God for all eternity. When when we lower the bar, when when we sterilize how bad sin is, we neuter the cross of what's actually happening there. And instead of seeing the unfathomable wisdom of God, men start to conceive that the cross is some sort of divine child abuse. It's in, in that framework that eternity in hell becomes too much punishment for a mere lifetime of, of sin. These increasingly popular ideas tear at the very foundation and glory of the gospel itself. Many Christians who are most enamored with the biblical idea or, or the word reconciliation, concepts like peace and love, they have no stomach for the essential price that was paid to actually achieve those things. They divorce those words from their actual biblical meaning. At a Christian university, and there's passages about reconciliation all over the place. And all these passages about reconciliation are just being held up and touted as this wonderful thing. And not a single one of these ideas had any sort of connection to the reconciliation they're promoting being primarily between God and man. Yes, reconcile people who are in enmity with each other. Yes, reconcile races that are having a hard time just even living next door to each other. Yes, reconcile marriages in difficulty. Reconcile relationships between estranged fathers and sons. Reconcile relationships between heads of state and nations to prevent war. But all of that is only possible because God has sought reconciliation with us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Speak of God's love and peace without regard to God's holiness and the terror of the cross for Jesus robs Jesus of the eternal glory he purchased there. Here's a hard thought, but a true thought. God's love, in a very real sense, is not unconditional. God's love is not unconditional. It was conditional upon perfect obedience. But the mercy of God has seen that when we couldn't meet the condition, God in love sent His Son Jesus to walk out the condition in our place. To purchase with His blood the price that we couldn't meet. And that's the miracle of 2 Corinthians 5.21. One of the sweetest verses in all the Bible. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That that simple sentence is pregnant with world-altering truth. In a few direct words, Paul puts before us the gospel 
The gospel of reconciliation in all of its just breathtaking beauty. He unshrouds the mystery. He bears the wonder before us. Phil Hughes in his commentary on this passage writes, there is no sentence more profound in the whole of Scripture. Think about that. The entire Bible has no other verse more profound than the verse we're looking at this morning, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For this verse embraces, Phil Hughes says, the whole ground of the sinner's reconciliation with God. How do you have any hope to stand before God? How do you have any hope that upon His return you won't cower in fear but will rejoice? How? Because of 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He the Father made Him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him, Christ Jesus, we who were rebellious, sinful, treasonous God-haters might become the very righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 reveals the final basis of our reconciliation. Mortal enemies of God receive eternal peace with Him only through Christ's imputing work. Imputation is God's means of reckoning sinful men clean and holy. The thing I think we oftentimes fail to realize is in our rebellion, it's not just that we need a clean slate. God's not just devoid of sin, right? When we say that God's holy, it just doesn't mean that He doesn't do bad things. It means that in His holiness, He's perfect. To come into the presence of that kind of being isn't just that you're morally neutral. To come into that presence, you need your own perfect record. Only when Christ's righteousness and His perfect obedience, only when His life always doing the Father's will perfectly and unfailingly, whether He was six years old and not fighting with the other six-year-olds in the playground, or whether He was going to the temple for the first time, or whether he was 30 and, and returning to his hometown and having his own, his own family fight against him, or he's interacting with religious leaders, even as he clears the temple in holy wrath, his entire life lived in perfect obedience to the Father's will. Only when Christ's righteousness gets taken and taken from his account and moved over to our account, that's the only time we go from not just having a bad record, not just having a neutral record, but having a perfect record. That's the gospel. Where we've only known failure, Jesus doesn't just remove the shortcomings. He, he applies His faithfulness. Perhaps the most wonderful thing in all of this, Sinclair Ferguson writes, God lifts us not only from what we are by nature, to what Adam was in the Garden of Eden, but to what Adam was to become in the presence of God and would have had he persevered in obedience. The gospel does not make us like Adam in his innocence, 
The Gospel makes us like Christ in all the perfection of His reflection of God. The purpose of the Gospel, the purpose of God imputing our sin away from us and imputing Christ's righteousness onto us isn't so that we would be like Adam before he sinned. It's so that we would be co-heirs with Christ. That we would look like Christ. That we would reflect the majesty and the brilliance and the glory and the holiness of God Himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 speaks of this imputation, but it speaks of a double imputation. The price of reconciling us isn't just that we receive all of Christ's faithfulness, as stunning as that is. It's not that we just get reckoned holy counted righteous like Jesus was. It's that all of our sin, all of our lawlessness, all of the curse that we've earned throughout our entire lives, even by our own nature, all of that gets applied to Christ. It gets set upon His back. Verse 19 does not say that God overlooks trespasses. In love, God decides, I won't be angry at sin. My love is going to win out over my anger against sin, and I'm just going to Push it aside. I'm going to stick it in that closet where you put stuff when you're having people over. You don't want them to see it. That's just what I'm going to do with people's sin. I'm going to put it in this little corner, close the door, and I just won't think about it anymore. He can't do that. It says, He does not count our sins against us. Sin isn't ignored. Sin's imputed. God's holiness requires satisfaction against His justice. We talked a few weeks ago in the series on Malachi, right? They're accusing God. You're not just. God rebuts them. and says, I am just. But in what culture, think about this, in what culture does the wronged party, the party who's been offended, in what culture does that party ever pay the price for the other person's transgression? Where would that happen? And you would say, that is justice. That man killed that man. And the wife of the murdered man is now going to prison for it. Oh, that is justice. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute. We we don't have a category for that. How does that work? And yet God does exactly that. What we would deem as contemptibly unjust for lesser offenses between human beings, God does on our behalf. According to the righteousness of God, we deserve nothing less than eternal separation and punishment from God. That's the curse of our disobedience. When, when a pardon takes place, presidential pardon, right? The end of office, presidents pardon all sorts of people. When a pardon takes place, a lot of times justice hasn't been satisfied. A lot of times the pardon party is guilty. Compassion might have taken place, but there hasn't been just punishment for a crime. Justice. Justice for the price of sin against God's holiness was accomplished only when Christ took the burden and took the penalty for our sins. We aren't just pardoned. 
at the cross. We are pardoned because Christ is punished. Reconciliation requires us to be justified before God's holiness. And justification is a coin with two sides. One side is the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. And the other side is the forgiveness of our sins because all of those sins are imputed to Christ. We become the righteousness of God in the same way Jesus becomes sin through God actively imputing those things. Our filthy garments are removed and they're replaced with Christ's pure vestments. Our sin-defiled robes aren't forgotten. The stench isn't cast aside. It's placed on the back of Jesus. I love how the song puts it. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. You ever felt your heart stir when you sing those words? You know the good news of the gospel. But make it a bit more personal. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is placed upon Christ. And He bears its shame. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. God has made the sinless one sin for us. The righteous one becomes the ground of reconciliation for the unrighteous. You can't sever the atonement from reconciliation. Our self-awareness should be both of our sinfulness and of our righteousness in Christ. I love the final words of John Newton before his death. A precious saint, but amazing grace. Wise pastor, pastor of pastors. His letters are just this treasure trove of biblical wisdom. Before he was saved, he was a slaver. He, he knew his sins. On his deathbed, he said this, my mind is almost gone, but one thing I remember. I am a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. He understood the nature of his reconciliation. And that leads us into the reward of reconciliation. Verse 18, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. In light of everything else we've said this morning, verse 20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We implore you on behalf of the one who was pinned to that tree in your place. Be reconciled to God. What a privilege to enter 2015 and say, I want to be an ambassador for Christ. 
I want to herald that message. I want to live in such a way that people see the beauty of what Christ has accomplished. The ministry of reconciliation is not primarily about being a peacemaker between men. It's not about doing deeds that receive Nobel Peace Prizes, right? It's primarily a ministry with a message. It's proclaiming to people the stunning, indescribable beauty of 2 Corinthians 5.21. So what if our resolution for 2015 was as simple and profound as Paul's in 1 Corinthians 2.2? For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The knowledge of the glory of the gospel was such that for Paul, he wanted to know nothing else. What if we joined hands together in our church here, Providence, and we said, in 2015, in in our marriages, in our care groups, in our serving, in our worshiping, in, in our fellowship with one another, in our hospitality with co-workers and neighbors, in our evangelism, in our missional living... In all of those things in 2015, what if in all of them, our ultimate purpose is to pursue and to behold and to know and to proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified? That's our resolution for 2015. What if we placed all of our other resolutions beneath that great resolution? In fact, you don't have other resolutions but that they're pointed towards the greater resolution? What if your goals of of weight loss, of book reading, healthier diets, more quality time with loved ones, less television, what what if all those resolutions and whatever else you might have, what if those were pursued for the higher purpose of wholeheartedly deepening our communion with the crucified and risen Jesus Christ in 2015. How sweet would we stand here a year from now? Say, we raise an Ebenezer, a rock of remembrance. How sweet was this year to have known the crucified, risen, and reconciling Savior. Because that's the good news. The express purpose of the cross is to bring us deeper into relationship with God. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. He took our place He wore our sin. He clothed us with His perfection so that we could know the Father, Son, and Spirit. So that we could have the gift that Adam lost at the fall. Finish with this quote by Sinclair Ferguson. getting our minds around what happens in reconciliation. 
It is as if he has said to me, here is my righteousness. Wear it. It's yours. It fits your needs perfectly and completely. It's Christ's gift to us. And then as I stand in God's presence, the Father, He looks at me and I hear Him say, where have I seen that righteousness before? Come near. Ah, I recognize it now. That is my Son's righteousness you are wearing. Enter. You are welcome and you are safe here. Would you pursue that kind of knowledge and that kind of experience with me in 2015? Because by the grace of God, it is available for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we want to enter your presence. We want to drink living water. We want to have the deep desires of our souls satisfied. We want to have our guilt and shame cast aside. We want to know you, the true and living God. And so we come in the name of your son, Jesus, the great reconciler of his saints. God, we ask that we could place an Ebenezer, a stone of remembrance a year from now and look back over 2015 and recognize that through the grace of your gospel, through the name of your son, Jesus, we have drawn near. Father, we want to know you. We want to walk with you. We want to commune with you. We want to be changed by you this year. So we ask now in the name of Jesus, send your spirit. Do that very thing. In Jesus' name.